So welcome back to the Story of Software podcast. Today we're going to talk about data-driven decision-making and we're joined by Ronan Dowling-Cullen, who's the CTO at Bounce Insights. How are you today, Ronan? I'm doing well. How are you, Padre? I'm very good. I look forward to this discussion uh, because we're going to get into topics around how technology can be used to improve market research for companies and how tech can equip businesses with the data they need to make complex decisions around strategy, around business, etc. Renan, maybe to kick off, you could tell us a little bit about what made you pursue a career in technology. Yeah, sure. Um, I suppose it's a bit of a complicated question, and there's probably a lot of things that went into it, but I've always loved tinkering with things, you know, trying to build things, trying to figure out how things work. And then as soon as I got my hands on my first computer, I was obsessed with it. You know, I was playing games, trying to figure out how to get online. In particular, I like breaking things and then trying to put them back together. There was one moment when I was maybe 13 or 14, and my mom called me in and she was like, oh, Ron, I need to call somebody about the, the door to the kitchen. The handle's broken. And I live in this very old house, or did when I was a kid with my mom. And uh, I was like, oh, no, mom, don't worry. I'll figure it out. It must be simple. So I unscrew the back of the, the handle and uh, the thing explodes. It's spring-loaded. Pieces shoot all over the kitchen into pots and pans, stuff like that. My mom shakes her head and walks out of the room and just leaves me in there. And then over the course of the next three hours, I figure out all the bits and manage to put it back together. and. Kind of after doing that, I just always wanted to take stuff apart, put it back together and see if I could understand the magic behind it. And then that sort of problem solving really led me to enjoy maths and that sort of work in school. And then looking at college courses, computer science was the one that had the most varied and diverse problem solving options. You know, engineering is also a great option and sciences as well, but I felt they were a little bit prescriptive. You know, there was a bit too much. This is a defined process that we have to follow. So yeah, computer science really excited me and I haven't looked back since I jumped in. Fantastic. I'd love to know a little bit more about Bounce Insights. So I know you're, you're in the consumer market research space, married with technology. Could you tell us a little bit more specifically what you do and how you do it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Bounce was founded in early 2019 with myself and four of my friends from, from university. It came off the back of what most people would call, and I'd probably call them as well, some failed startup ideas we had. The reason for the failure was really just a lack of validation. We hadn't spoken to consumers of our products. There was no real proof that it would work in the market. And we failed to receive investment. We failed to get off the ground when we tried to launch. And as a result of that, we looked into how would we actually carry out research and how would we actually validate our ideas and before going to market with the product to, to save the time and energy needed to build the product. And when we looked into the industry in Ireland, we found that it was very expensive and also very difficult, particularly when you were looking at younger cohorts, so 18 to 24 and 25 to 34. Um, so off the back of that, we had an idea. We decided we could get anybody in Ireland to answer a survey or answer a couple of questions about a product if we made the experience enjoyable enough and incentivized them properly. We launched in mid-2019 and managed to get a couple of thousand users on the platform. And then we launched our Consumer Insights platform online, which is a dashboard where brands can validate the assumptions behind their decisions and really use that data to make those data-driven decisions that everybody's talking about. I think our, our biggest success has been the fact that we've been able to make it easy and real-time. So you're sitting in a meeting and you go, I wish I knew if our customers would prefer a red bottle or a blue bottle. How can we figure this out? and have an answer by the end of the day. And with our platform, you can 
throw a question to your customer and get the answers back in real time and really make those data-driven decisions that you couldn't before on the same timescale. That's really cool. Before we kind of delve further into that, based on the timelines that you're kind of talking about there, so mid-2019, really starting to move things forward, uh, we obviously had all the drama of 2020 coming hot on the heels. Um, could you tell us what the experience developing the business during the pandemic, lockdowns, during all the uncertainty and drama, what was the journey you guys went on during this time? Yeah, it was it was a bit of a roller coaster to be honest. You know, um, it was just myself and the the five of us as a team. We started out working, you know, ten, twelve hours a day together, seven days, you know, with all this face to face time, and then all of a sudden we were all on laptop screens working from bedrooms, and there was a lot of worry there. You know, we couldn't work together in the way that we wanted to. We didn't know how the industry was going to react, and um, but it actually led to some of our early opportunities because. You know, as budgets were getting cut for market research, people were willing to try a new technology and try a new way of gathering that data that they would normally go to larger, more established companies for. And it really gave us our, our kickoff. And then when the lockdowns kind of eased in the middle of 2020, we managed to secure a bit of office space, make our first hire, and things were going really well. And obviously, we went back into lockdowns again. We had to work with our first hire remotely for a long time, and that had its own challenges. But on the whole, I think we managed to get through it well. We managed to secure two rounds of funding since the beginning of the pandemic and significantly increase our revenue as well. So while it's added challenges and it hasn't aided us all the time, I think on the whole, it hasn't significantly impacted the business in the way that I initially thought it would. I'm not sure if you maybe had a similar experience, but one of the relieving things about the whole pandemic was, I remember, I I have to admit, like, in running Zartis, I was always afraid of crashing the company. And when the lockdowns happened, I remember thinking, well, you know, if we go out of business now, it's kind of not my fault. <laughs> there was something kind of freeing about all of that. And it actually kind of emboldened us to maybe be a bit gutsier in some of the decisions that we took. So I'm not sure if, if that was anything that you or any of your co-founders experienced, but uh, I kind of had the sense of like, well, look, you know, if things crash, it's not my fault. So I kind of felt a little bit off the hook somehow. Yeah, I get what you mean. And yeah, it definitely did take the kind of imminent pressure of, of failure away uh, at times. And I suppose one thing it did help us with was in being a bit more aggressive in who we looked to speak to. So obviously, Ireland was our starting market. But as you might be aware, we're, we're expanding into the UK and also into other markets now. And because everything moved remote, it was a lot easier to get a hold of you know representatives from the US, the UK and Europe on a Zoom call without us having to travel. And people were much more open to, to meet with you know, a small startup in Ireland if it only took 30 minutes of their time on a, on a video call. So I think that was an opportunity that we managed to make the most out of, I think in light of what you were saying as well, with that feeling of a, a bit more confidence and being willing to be a bit more aggressive and take some more risks in who we reached out to. That's really interesting. And you mentioned kind of some of the funding round stuff happening. Were you kind of fundraising by Zoom? Was that kind of how it all happened in that, in that regard? Yeah, um, it's funny. You know, the only funding pitches that we've done in person have been actually quite recent, you know, um, for the two rounds that we closed um, that you might have seen in the media and stuff. It was, it was fully online. So most of our investors we hadn't met in person um, or hadn't met the full team in person at least. And even our chairperson, we only met uh, in person for the first time, I think in October of this year, um, and he came on and funded us in 
in mid 2020. So really, it's uh, it's been a funny time for us. But being our first company, I really never had experience of being in those investor type pitches in person anyway. So doing it over Zoom kind of became the norm for us. That's really cool. You also mentioned your first hire. So what was the kind of experience of that? And like, what kind of mindset do you have when you're, you're bringing in a non-co-founder for the first time? Yeah, it's obviously a really tough one. Um, and it's, it's really scary, particularly the first time, because, you know, when you're a team of 100, adding one person won't have a huge impact on the culture and they'll kind of go with the flow of what's going on or they won't be a fit and they won't work out. But when you're a team of five, adding a sixth person can have a really significant impact on the culture and the output of the company as well. So we were really looking for somebody who was, was driven like ourselves. We, were, we always say we keep our hiring standards really high. We hire slow, hire fast. Now, thankfully, we've never had to fire anybody and everybody who's come on has been, been a great success. But we really took our time with it. We interviewed a lot of people. It was a software engineering hire. So thankfully, I was able to pull on my network for people I already knew to reach out to and then also referrals and you know, people who might have known each other from, from different jobs to get a better gauge of, of where they would sit within the company. And yeah, we were really lucky. Uh, our first hire was Derek and uh, he's been fantastic since he started. He's come on leaps and bounds. He's taking on more responsibility. So I suppose I can't claim that I have it all figured out, but we definitely managed to pull some success from, from really taking our time through that first hire process and carefully considering how this person is going to impact the culture. I think one question that we often ask ourselves is, would I trust this person to hire the next 10 people into the company? And that really puts a stop to anybody who you might have a little red flag about or somebody who, who may not be up to the standard that you're looking for um, or uphold the same values as you. So I think taking your time and considering if you trust them to hire other people into your company have been two really good points that we've done to succeed in our hiring. Um, I'd also love to ask you a little bit about the technology challenges. So like, what precisely are you building? How are you going about building it? Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the stack you're using and you know, some of the challenges. Yeah, absolutely. So a bit of background on the product, I suppose, for, for yourself, Roderick, or anybody who hasn't looked into us too deeply. As I was saying, we're a consumer insights platform. What we have is a web-based dashboard where brands can create any questions they want that they can then send out to our panel of users, which is on a mobile app. Um, and then they receive the results back to their web dashboard in real time. We also have an admin dashboard that we use to manage those surveys um, as they're going out and make sure that the responses coming back from the users are high quality, but also that the surveys being pushed out to our users are really high quality. And that's kind of something that we focused on since the beginning is, is that experience. So a lot of companies focus purely on ensuring the respondents give good quality back to them but don't focus so much on ensuring that what the respondents are getting is high quality. So every survey that goes out to our app users is vetted by somebody in the team to ensure that not only does it not include anything inflammatory or something that might upset some of our users, but also that the length isn't too significant, that the user experience is going to be high. And that's been a technology challenge that we've looked at from the start, ensuring, okay, how is this going to be for the user? How is this going to be for the respondent? And that's really given us advantage going forward. It is a significant challenge and it takes a lot of time to invest in that user experience when your revenue is coming from the other side of the platform. 
but we really feel like uh, it's part of our ethos and then uh, added value to the business. Right now, I suppose the the major issue that I'm trying to address is software delivery time. That's the time it takes from when we decide building a feature to when it's in a customer's hands. And really, that's what I see as the performance measure of software engineering team. And it's not that we have a particular issue with this. It's just I know that there are areas in which we can improve on this. Um, so one of the things that we're focusing on is being able to release on demand. So instead of having a weekly or bi-weekly major release that goes out, we're looking for every time a piece of work is finished and ready to go, it's automatically tested, approved by somebody in our team, and gets released and out to customers. And that's really bringing down not only our software delivery time, but also the time needed by engineers to manage those releases and uh, fix issues that arise off the back of them as well. And Ronan, do you find yourself engaging with your clients when it comes to like ideas around new features and you know what you're going to deliver and when? Absolutely. And I think uh, particularly for a small company, that's the core responsibility of the CTO. Obviously, the CEO and the commercial side of the business will all be talking to customers. But when you're a small company, you can't let that gap grow between the tech and the customers. So we have a lot of processes in place to gather feedback from our customers. You know, one of the biggest buttons on our dashboard is send us feedback. We want to know what you think. Um, but also um, myself, alongside our CCO, Charlie, we set up weekly customer discovery calls or customer meetings where we either talk to prospective customers in new markets or we talk to existing customers that we have. So I can hear the issues that they're having with the product, the things that they like. And then for prospective customers, you know, the problems that they have in their industry right now, the problems that they see with you know, potential competitors of ours or so that we can ensure that we're customer focused and customer obsessed really. And that's, I suppose, one thing that I didn't necessarily achieve as much in earlier in my career. You know, I was, I was more focused on building this best feature and I believe that the customers will like this. So let's just build it. But I really think that close relationship between the product and the technology and your customers is so key to building the best product. Uh, you also mentioned that there's kind of some uh, pitfalls that companies in your space will tend to make and that you're able to learn around the mistakes that maybe competitors or viewers are making. Would you be able to shed some light on what some of those kind of mistakes might be? Yeah, so as I was, I was somewhat touching on earlier, I think the biggest mistake that, that technology companies make when building a survey to software is they focus purely on the, the company that's carrying out the research because they're, they're providing the revenue. And it makes sense. But if you don't take into account the respondent experience or the experience of the person answering your questions, you can have really significant drop off of the people who are answering your surveys, which impacts your data quality over time. But in a given survey, if the experience is poor, I'm sure we've all had it. You know, you're filling out a survey and it's 15 minutes in, the questions don't make sense and the quality of your responses just goes down. So for us, it's really important to ensure that the respondents enjoy the experience of filling out the survey in order to keep that data quality as high as possible. And what we've really figured out is at about seven minutes for most people, they won't give good quality responses after that time. So up until about five minutes, it's really high quality. Five to seven minutes, it's good quality. And then beyond that, I wouldn't actually consider the responses worth looking at because they're so skewed by the, the respondents' dissatisfaction with the survey that uh, it's not even worth looking at. I partaken in surveys when I was a student uh, in college. I remember getting roped into a few different ones. 
and you know got involved because of incentives that were in offer <laughs> being a being a broke student at the time it was it was quite attractive so how important is like incentivization for getting participation in surveys and how do you go about making sure that you know the incentives are getting people in and involved but getting the right people in and getting them involved for the right reasons yeah absolutely so i think one of the things that companies sometimes do is they'll give an incentive that matches the brand that's carrying a survey so for example if uh you is carrying out a survey you might get given a coffee voucher one issue with that is it skews the research because the the respondent already has a positive affiliation with the brand then and that doesn't work in terms of getting the best quality research if you want to run a piece of pr that makes sense but for good quality data to make decisions off it's not the best so what we do is we reward our users with points and we allow them to decide what they would like to purchase we've got a mixture of things from in-store awards where you know they can get a free cup of coffee somewhere to online like nike and amazon or payments as well so we do revolut and um paypal and all the time as we're going in our app we use the data-driven decisions in the same way that we like our customers to and we ask our respondents you know what rewards would you like to see in the platform and how do you feel about the current rewards do they match your needs is there anything else that you'd like to see and that's been great for us in building out that rewards network and really ensuring that we're engaging all the different cohorts within our mobile app because the rewards that a, a 22 year old male in university in work once will be very different to the the rewards that a 65 year old woman in dublin would want as well so not being too narrow in the rewards that we have as well has been really useful to us very cool um i've also been wondering uh kind of in the lead up to recording this could you give us like a real life example of a client deriving data from your technology making a decision and getting a great business outcome yeah absolutely so um one thing that we ran for uh this was early days in in the running of the company but there was a chain of cafes one of which had a branch in town in dublin and they wanted to know how young people particularly 18 to 24 year olds felt about plastic water bottles and um, it was a hot topic at the time and there was a lot of issues with you know even if you recycle water bottles they still have a significant draw on the environment and it's not a good thing to be doing so they ran a piece of research basically saying would people be willing to pay a little bit more for canned water as opposed to bottled water and the the answer was overwhelmingly yes so quickly on a week's turnaround they stopped the supplier who was giving them water bottles and instead went to one that would give them cans of water and the sales increased of water over time as well and it was a fantastic outcome for them and a fantastic outcome for us as well as an early uh, use case very cool and um... I'd also like to understand whether there has been kind of any nuances in your experience when entering different markets. So like ourselves, you're internationalizing. Anything kind of unexpected happen when you started talking to companies in the UK? Any difference in terms of how you sell into these different markets? I'm, I'm pretty interested in this whole experience of internationalization. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously there's, there's challenges with entering new markets. In particular, you know the the localization of, of how you you speak and communicate your solution, or the problems you're solving may be slightly different or not present in the market that you're looking at. 
So what we really like to do is actually go into the market first as a learning experience and not initially trying to sell uh, and just go and talk to customers who we see as being potentially great customers of ours, somebody who would love our product. And we just go, look, I'm not trying to sell you right now. All I want to know is the problems that you're having and how they could be improved. Um, and I just need 30 minutes of your time to chat that through. And that's been great for us for understanding how to speak to clients in that market and also validating whether that's a good market to enter. One big opportunity that we've had is that a lot of the brands that we work with in Ireland, you know, for example, like Diageo, Coca-Cola, HBC, and Tesco would have arms of their companies in other markets as well. So it's been quite easy to get warm introductions to, you know, a head of insights counterpart in, in the UK or, or somewhere in Europe. So leveraging those connections is, is really important in getting an understanding of what differences there are and what similarities there are and how you can solve problems for people in the new market. Because the assumption that it's just going to be the same uh, will definitely lead to issues. I, I think it must also help that like you got some really great brands on board in terms of your early stage customers. I mean, those are super impressive early stage clients to get. So that's a, a great accomplishment and I suppose a great way to put your business on a sound footing. And it's always going to be impressive when you're, when you're pitching into new markets that you show that, you know, companies that are going to have high standards that are going to be difficult to sell into in the first place are already engaging with you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think uh, we've been really lucky in the brands that we've worked with and that they all seem to be really happy with the product and have been more than happy to give testimonials. And, and those testimonials are, are really a deciding factor when you're talking to a new customer who may not have heard of you before uh, in whether or not they try out the product. Yeah, not only have they given us warm introductions into new markets, but they're, they're willing to put their name to it and say, look, Bewley's used this or Granbia used this or Tesco used this and they love it, you know, and that's been fantastic for us. Fantastic. Uh, the last question I have for you is what advice would you give to your younger self based on what you've learned as a startup CTO? That's a good question. Um, I'd say that there's a couple of things. One I, I touched on already, which is talk to your customers earlier and more frequently they're going to be the best person to tell you whether or not your idea is going to fall on its face and give you a steer to a better idea as well. One issue as well that ties to that is talking to your customers once and then going away and building and coming back and showing it to them and saying, this is what you wanted, right? Um, I think that the frequency and the continued conversations with customers is really the key to building a strong technology product. And thankfully, as a technology product, you're able to be iterative and you're able to, you know, release versions and work with customers over time. But really talking to customers as frequently as possible is one of the big things. Another thing I would say as well, which is just kind of more of a, a piece of management advice, is don't hoard responsibility. So, you know, not everything can be approved by you. Not everything can be built by you. And you're going to have to rely on people within your team. And not only are they going to be more than capable of doing it, 99% of the time, they're probably going to be better than you as well. Um, and particularly if you've hired right, you should be hiring for people who can achieve the tasks that you might be doing right now, but even better. And I think it takes a bit of experience and a bit of comfort in your hires to be able to do that. But as you know, one of my advisors always says, if you hire somebody to drive the bus, let them drive the bus. Uh, let people take responsibility and let people become leaders in their own right within your organization. That's fantastic advice and, and a great point to end on. I really want to thank you for your time today. It's been a super interesting discussion and uh, also congratulate you on the success of the business. 
Thanks very much, Patrick. It's been a great chat. Fantastic. So production by Adnan Tuchar with support from Evan Sheehan and Albina Krasteva and music by Robert Cooney. Catch you next time on the Story of Software podcast.